So my wife and I have been married for 11 years. I, I know, it's, it's, it's more her credit than anything else. And what we've realized is that we have started to outlive all of the gifts, some of the gifts that we were given in our, at our wedding. We are outliving our appliances. So, you know, our coffee maker broke. It was, you know, it stayed alive for 10 years. The, some of the pots and the spoons, the handles are falling off and we have to buy new things. And, you know, I know somewhere in there, there's a deep spiritual lesson. But let me just be transparent with you. The first thought that came to my mind, the first thing that came to my mind is, we should have put more expensive stuff on our registry. <laughs> but seriously, the, the lesson here, the simple lesson is that the things of this world, the things that we focus on and invest in so much are temporary. They are limited. The things of this world are limited. And in contrast, John 10 verse 10, Jesus gives an invitation and this is what he says. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come so that you can have abundant life. And I don't know about you, but I long for that in my life. And the question is, is that abundant life available in the sweet by and by? Or is it also available today in the here and now? And the answer is, it's both. It is available to us every single day when we wake up. That life to the full. And so if we were created for more life, for abundant life, if we long for it, why do we settle for less? So join us in the next five weeks, whether it's here in the tent, whether it's in the cool AC in the gym, or whether you're online. Join us for this upcoming series, Limitless. And today, we'll explore limitless purpose and some of the lessons we learned from the life of Moses. When I look at the story of Moses in Exodus, I see a story of motivation, about motivation. And, and I ask myself, what motivates me? What gets me up in the morning? And you know what? It varies, probably like you, based on the day. Some days, what motivates me is the need for approval. Anybody else identify with that? Some days, it's the need to be in control, especially if you have kids. Some days, it's the need for achievement. A tough time at work, and I'm doing things, it's the, it's the need for achievement. Sometimes, it's guilt. Sometimes I'm motivated by resentment, anger, fear. All of these things are competing for my attention, and they motivate me. And what we're going to see is that in the first 40 years of Moses' life, he is motivated by his own abilities and the illusion of control. And some of you might remember Moses, his story. He's born a Hebrew. His parents devise a plan to save him. They put him in the river, and Pharaoh's own daughter sees him. And Pharaoh, uh, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court. He's viewed as a prince of Egypt. In fact, his name, Moses, is an Egyptian name. And if you look at 
the Egyptian kings around, surrounding him, before him and after him, you will actually see the name Moses is a royal name. You'll see kings like the I, which has the word Moses in there. So even Moses' name is royal. In fact, some historians believe that Moses was actually in line to be Pharaoh. And if he wasn't in line to be Pharaoh, he was at least a high-ranking general at the time. Acts 7, verse 22, Stephen is giving a speech to the Sanhedrin, and he looks back and he makes this comment about Moses. He says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. But even with all of this title and this power and this privilege, Moses knew his story. He knew that he was Hebrew. He knew his Israelite story. And he may even thought and look back at Joseph being in a high-ranking Egyptian position, delivering his people. He may have even thought, God, if you're the VP of HR in the Bible, this is wonderful succession planning because I'm the next logical guy after Joseph. I'm falling right in line with your leadership plan. And so he took matters into his own hands when given the opportunity to deliver his people. And we meet him in Exodus 2, verse 11 to 14. And here he is addressing the injustice of his own people. So here's Moses, and we read this. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now for this, these couple of verses to make sense, you have to know two things. The first is that at this time, Egypt was possibly the most powerful nation on earth. If they were not, they were very, very close to it. Not only did they have the military, they had the trade and the financial network that spread. So here is Moses, who's killed an Egyptian. And the consequence for killing an Egyptian, whether you were a foreigner or an Egyptian yourself, the consequence of killing an Egyptian was death. And Moses knows this. The consequence for killing an Egyptian is death. And the only option that Moses has is to run. And run he did. To get out of the grasp of Pharaoh, he not only has to get out of Egypt, he's got to get out of the Sinai. Because the Sinai area has all of these military outposts and trade alliances with these tribes. So he's got to go from Egypt, past Sinai, to the Arabian Peninsula, to a people group called Midian. Seven or eight tribes that are collected on the Arabian Peninsula. A very humble people that mostly tend sheep. So Moses gets this wake-up call from his fellow Hebrew, and he runs. And if I were to summarize this chapter of Moses' life, this 40 years up until he runs, I would summarize this as, as this. When self 
is the center, we have limited purpose. When self is the center, we have limited purpose. And in that instant, Moses gets a wake-up call of what he has done, what he has accomplished for 40 years and finds out that it is worthless. It counts for nothing. He has to run. You know, there's a story in the 18th, 18th century of a guy by the name of Alfred Nobel. And his story is an interesting one. Now, you may recognize the name Nobel because the Nobel Peace Prize was funded by him. Millions and millions of dollars that he left behind was where we, where we started out with the Nobel Peace Prize. And you may think he was a Swedish version of Gandhi or MLK Jr., but he wasn't. He lived a very different life. In fact, his father was a Swedish industrialist who moved to Russia and made his money by using gunpowder for military purposes. Started out as civil engineer, but then he realized how lucrative it was to commercialized gunpowder in warfare. And so Alfred Nobel learns his father's trade, but he doubles down and he builds an even bigger empire. By the time we meet him in his adult life, at the age of 17, he's fluent in five languages. At the end of his life, he had 335 patents. He had offices or buildings or labs in 90 countries, in 90 places in the world, and in 20 countries. This guy had amassed so much wealth. He was an inventor, a chemist, an engineer, a, business, a businessman, and a philanthropist. But in 1888, he gets this wake-up call. In 1888, his brother Ludwig, in France, dies. And a French newspaper mistakenly thinks that Alfred Nobel has died, not his brother. And they print an obituary. And Alfred Nobel reads the obituary and he gets this epiphany. He gets a picture of what the world views his empire that he's built on. And this is what it says. It said, the merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Day. And I wonder what would happen if we got our obituary and we were able to read what our empire, what all that time we spent, what that would inform us of. And I, I believe today, as America as a country, there's a couple of wake-up calls that have come our way in the last year or two, as recent as Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and what's happening in, in Hollywood. There was an interesting article in the New York Times, and it had a write-up of Anthony Bourdain, somebody who I watched, who just loved for just his sense of adventure and excitement. And, and it was really insightful what they said. Here's, here's an excerpt from the New York Times. It said, Anthony Bourdain devoured the world. That's not a hyperbole. It's not even a metaphor. There is no place he wasn't curious to explore, no food he wasn't determined to try, no cap on his hunger, and no ceiling or so it always seemed, on his joy. But death, coming just days after the suicide of the beloved designer Kate Spade, is at least a noteworthy for another reason. How powerful, and this is where it gets profound, it speaks to the discrepancy between what we see on the outside and what we're experiencing on the inside. 
between their public faces and their private lives, between the visible swagger and the invisible pain. Parts Unknown, which was the name of his show, that was true of Bourdain. That was true of Spade. That's true of every one of us. And so I say to you, as you focus on maybe building your empire, maybe if you're a business owner and you're building a better business, maybe you're climbing the corporate ladder, maybe you're working on having the beautiful home, the perfect lawn, kids that obey you, whatever empire you're building, when self is the center, we have limited purpose. When self is the center, we have limited purpose. The next 40 years of Moses' life is interesting because he's motivated by something completely different. The next 40 years in Midian, he's actually motivated, he's paralyzed by his failure and insecurity. We meet him when God meets him at the burning bush. And God reveals his plan to him to say, I am going to use you to deliver my people. I've heard their cries. I've not been silent. I've not been sleeping. I've not been at the the wheel asleep. I am ready to deliver my people. And perhaps God has used Moses' 40 years in the desert, tending sheep in self-imposed exile so that he can eventually identify with God's people who've been in exile for 400 years in Egypt. And so we meet God in this exchange with Moses. He's told him what he wants to do, and Moses has an excuse, and then another, and then another. And then finally, in Exodus 4, verse 1 to 5, there's this final exchange that we're going to read. And this is God and Moses going back and forth, and here is what happens in Exodus 4, verse 1 to 5. It says this, Moses answered, when God sends him out, says, here's what I want you to do. Moses answers, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is it that's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it to the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of it, the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand. Uh, This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And so God basically says to Moses, I have not been asleep. I have heard their cries. And I am using you to go and rescue my people. And if I were to summarize this exchange, I would say, I would, I would say that God is saying to Moses this principle, that our unconditional surrender is what unlocks God's limitless purpose in our lives. God's unconditional surrender is what unlocks God's limitless purpose in our lives. Now, I know surrender is probably not on your hit list of American values that you want. I've never read a story of of one of our early forefathers who fought for independence 
And the thing that we celebrate is his ability to surrender. When I send my kids out to soccer practice to their coach, my five and my seven-year-old, I don't expect them to go on the soccer field and go, let's try and surrender today. If they do, I'm asking for a refund for that coach. It's not something we value as a society. But I believe that this kind of surrender is something very different. It's not giving up. It's about really who we're surrendering to, not that we're surrendering and just giving up. Rick Warren, in his book, Purpose Driven Life, has a, a beautiful quote about surrendering. He says this, Surrendering to God is not passive resignation, not fatalism or even an excuse for laziness. It may mean the exact opposite. Sacrificing your life or suffering in order to change what needs to be changed. God often calls surrendered people to do battle on his behalf. Surrendering to God is not for cowards or doormats. And the truth is, we surrender every single day, whether you think so or not. We surrender to the things that motivate us. We surrender to other people's opinions and expectations. We order our lives based on what they expect from us. We surrender to money. I surrender to money, to what it can buy me. Sometimes I surrender to resentment. Sometimes it's to fear. Sometimes it's to my own pride or lust or ego. So our unconditional surrender unlocks God's limitless purpose in our life. And so, by the end of this passage, God is inviting Moses not to focus on his strength, which he would have 40 years ago, or not to focus on his weakness, which he's doing at 80 years old, but to focus on God. And there's three principles just tied up in these three verses. And the first is this, that God wants Moses to rely on his presence. God wants us to rely on on his presence. You see, it's not about who you are. Maybe you thought you were the prince of Egypt, that you had authority, that you had the royal seal, that you have a position at work, that you have a position in your family or in your community. It's not about who you are. God has stripped Moses from that. God is saying to Moses, it's not who you are, it's who is with you. And who is with you? God says to him in these short few verses, it is the God of Abraham. It is the God of Isaac. It is the God of Jacob. Learn to rely on God's presence. The second thing God says in these few verses is learn to rely on my provision. Learn to rely on God's provision. See, when Moses was in Egypt, he had the wealth of the entire country at his disposal if he was clever enough to ask for it. He had a chariot. He had a palace. He had people at his command. But now he's in the desert at 80 years old and he has nothing. In fact, if you look back at Exodus chapter 3, there's an interesting verse. When God meets Moses in chapter 3 verse 1, it says an interesting thing. Here's what it says. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law. So 80 years into this running away business and being a shepherd, he is tending the flock of his father-in-law. More than likely, 
Moses does not even have his own sheep after 40 years. The only thing he has when God meets him is his staff. And now God says to him, I want you to go. I know you have nothing. Rely on my provision. And God says that to us today. Rely on my provision. The last thing God says to Moses in these four verses is this. Learn to rely on my power, not your might. Learn to rely on my power, not your might. If you read later on in the story of Moses and the Exodus, you will read about the might of the Egyptian army as they follow the Hebrews, the Israelites, to the Red Sea. And it details the power of that Egyptian army. And Moses is thinking, God, I have a staff. And you're telling me, go to the most powerful commander in the world and tell him, let my people go? And God says to Moses, yes, that is exactly what I'm asking you to do. Rely on my power. And he says in these verses, so that they may believe. God has already told Moses they're going to believe. And I know surrendering sounds easy on paper, but the truth is we all wrestle with failures in our lives. And if I'm honest with you, there's two areas of failures that I wrestle with constantly. And I'll share those with you. The first one is purely for your enjoyment. And the first area I constantly fail in is driving. I'm an awful driver. If you're a volunteer in the parking lot when I'm driving in on a Sunday, we should double your pay. And I know some, some of you ladies are thinking, no, nah, my husband is a worse driver. You can't be that bad. But let me, let me one-up that. Let me just tell you. I want you to think in your mind, especially if you have a teenager, what is a reasonable number of times that you expect your teenager to take the driving test and fail or eventually pass? Just think of a reasonable number. And I'll tell you that my number is not one, it's not two, it's not three, it's not four, it's not five, it's a half a dozen. So if, if you're one of our teens and you're listening here, I want you to feel secure and I want you to feel good that you cannot be as bad as I was. Now, there's no hope in this sermon for my driving abilities, but there is hope for other types of failure. And the other type of failure that I wrestle with constantly is my failure to share my faith to other people. And I wonder if there's other people that have, feel that type of failure. But, but my insecurity, my anxiety is this, that somebody is going to say exactly what that Hebrew said to Moses. And they're going to say to me, who made you judge over us? When I share my faith, they're going to say, you're a hypocrite. Who told you that you could judge us? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be in Wegmans, and the baker is going to look at me and say, I know you. You're that guy that yells at your five-year-old that he can't have a donut before dinner. What's the big deal? You're no different from me. My neighbor's going to look at me and say, you're just an ordinary guy. You're just like me. You leave your garbage laid out for two days all the time. You know, I have this fear that my coworker's going to say to me, you're no different from us. You're no holier than I am. You break the speed limit all the time. And my failure... My fears, my insecurity, it cripples my ability to share my faith. And I know that if I'm to branch out and accomplish and be a part of God's limitless purpose, I have to surrender those failures to God. And I'm sure you've got your own failure 
that you're wrestling with, whether it's that broken home, that broken marriage, that child, that kid that's not doing what you want, that's run away from home, or that's doing what they want to do. They're far from God. Maybe it's your business that's failing. Maybe it's awful relationships at work. I don't know where in your life you feel like you're failing. But it's time for us to surrender. And I don't mean surrender giving up. I mean surrender by relying on God's provision, by relying on God's presence, by relying on God's power in your life. I want to share with you, through a video, a story of Jeff and Amy Roeders, a long time, probably grew up, in, probably were born right here in this church and grew up. Many of you know Jeff and Amy, but this is a, you know, in the last couple of years, they have a phenomenal story of how God has brought them to the place of surrender in their lives and God, how God has accomplished his will. So I want to share that story with you briefly before we wrap up. Jeff and I struggled with infertility for five years. As we struggled through, would I ever have kids? Would I ever raise kids? What would that look like? Envisioning my life without them, I, it was scary. I, I really wanted them and I got mad that God wasn't giving them to me in my timing and when I wanted them. With all the different cycles and all the different procedures, Isley was a result of many prayers. So after we had Isley, we had both agreed and knew that God did not want us to go down that path again, that that was really challenging and that was a big struggle for us. Just growing our family in general has, has uh, been a, probably the greatest driver in, in strengthening my faith as a believer and ultimately coming to the conclusion that that God is good no matter what situation you're in, um, no matter what the outcome is. It wasn't until I felt like I was 100% able to relinquish the control to have the things that I wanted, good or bad, and to fully trust in his process. He was, he was waiting for that moment in my life before he was going to say, okay, here you go. I guess one thing that that I'm trying to do now in, in those situations that are difficult is, is continually choose him and, and choose to uh, acknowledge that he's good in moments where it's not easy to do so. I don't like to look at myself and say, look at this great faith I had because if you could see my mind and my heart in some of these moments, you'd see some really ugly stuff. So I met a girl in fertility yoga and she came, ended up coming to church with me. And she did stand up and give her life to Christ on Church on the Lawn. It was right after I had had Isley. And then one of my girlfriends had said to me, what if you had never had a baby? Would knowing that she accepted Christ be enough for all the struggles that you ever went through? And that was hard to chew on because in my heart, I wanted to say no. Would that have been worth it? To go through that struggle and go through all that infertility, to not end up with a baby, which so many people do, but knowing that a life was saved in the process of, of my struggle. A lot of our life was waiting. 
It was waiting on God's timing. It was waiting on his plan and it was never fast enough for me. And it was never in my own timing. And it took five years and a lot of waiting for me to be like, okay, you're right. Your timing is far better than mine. And so positioning me and getting me ready to adopt Shiloh, again, it was, remember, it's my timing. Remember, it's my plan and I will show you and reveal it to you when I'm good and ready to do that for you. And also that he kept reminding me and holding me in his hands and saying like, I have it. My sovereign plan will not be thwarted. You know, for, for Jeff, he said in the video, surrender for him was relinquishing control. For Amy, it was giving up her timetable of when she wanted to have kids. And I wonder, what could God do in our lives if we unconditionally surrendered? What could God do with us as a church if as a church we unconditionally surrendered? Is what we're working on right now, is the empire that we're building really worth it? Is it eternal? Is it limitless? I want to leave you with one final quote before we pray and before Peter comes and gives us some next steps. And it's a, it's a quote from Francis Chan, and it says this, Our greatest fear should not be failure, but of, but of succeeding in things, at things that don't really matter. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the example that you've given us from the life of Moses. And we thank you for the lessons of humility, the lessons of ambition, the lessons of control, all of that, Lord, that you're enticing us to give up. And Lord, I know that there are so many situations in this room. There's so many, so many family situations. There's so many different situations at work that we deal with every day. So many targets, so many metrics that we're measured against. There's so many families, so many extended family situations. And Lord, we are all being tugged and pulled and motivated by completely different things. And the only thing that matters, Lord, is that we're motivated and that we're surrendered to you. So Lord, would you give us the grace and the humility to give up those desires and those motivations to you? And would you use us individually as families and a church for your glory, for your limitless purpose. Amen. Thanks, guys.